Still be my vision, O Lord, thou ruler of all. Rule this congregation this morning with your merciful hand, O Lord, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And guard our hearts and minds through Jesus Christ as we hear your proclaimed word. Apply it to our hearts. Nourish us with the deep truths of your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We'll turn to the book of Romans once again this morning. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Right at the beginning, I'll read the first eight verses. Romans chapter 5. First eight verses. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was, who was given to us. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love to us in this, that While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. I meant to include that verse, number nine. Saved from wrath through him. Oh, Father, may we be the inheritors of these, your precious promises, we pray in Jesus' blessed name this morning. Amen. And so here we are again, Book of Romans. Seems like a long time ago. It was only two weeks ago. I stood here and we talked about the end of chapter 4, verse 1. Very important verse. I'm going to stress it and labor over it quite a bit. Parse it down. Make sure we get all the goodness out of it. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have to start this morning's sermon by focusing on the word therefore, because my intellectual mentor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, really labors over the word therefore, particularly this therefore. And so he writes a quotation from, the, from Martin Lloyd-Jones's commentaries, which are really a sermon on this, on this passage. He said, the apostle starts this new section in characteristic fashion by using the word therefore. He goes on. I sometimes think that the whole secret of the Christian life is to know how to use the word therefore. Now, just when you think he overstated the case, he doubles down. He really means what he just said. The whole Christian life, our thoughts, our understanding of doctrine depends on our understanding of the word therefore, and he makes the case, and I'm going to make the case for you this morning, I hope. He goes on, he says, the Christians who have shined most brightly throughout the centuries have always been those who have been able to use this, therefore. He says, correspondingly, most failures in the Christian life ought to be traced to an inability to use this word and to deduce what we should and what we ought from this great doctrine we have been studying. Now, that's quite an amazing statement, don't you think? He reduces 
in some sense, all Christian maturity to an understanding of the word therefore. Um, now, what does he mean? My, my first impulse, you know me, I'm a skeptic. I don't let anybody just tell me stuff. I right away, as you're telling me, and I'm going like this, I'm like, boy, is he stupid. Uh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I'm always skeptical. I'm a downright cynic is what I am, a pessimist. I don't mind telling you. I have the word of God, and it has to measure up to this. And my mind's going, does that measure up to the word of God, what he's telling me? And Martin Lloyd, even though I love Lloyd-Jones, I'm thinking all the while, that's a sweeping statement. But what it is is a procedural statement. My first reaction is to doubt the good doctor's assertion. Now, we can call Martin Lloyd-Jones the good doctor because he was an actual medical doctor. I just want you to know that. He, his, he doesn't have a Ph.D. He has, what is it called with the doctor? An MD. <laughs> Had to ask the doctor. <laughs> uh, an MD. That's right. Um, my first impulse uh, is, to, is to think he's exaggerating, right? You exaggerate for emphasis. It's not wrong. But in essence, an exaggeration is a white lie, right? Because we have to be accurate. We don't stand in the pulpit and just exaggerate all the things to get everybody all excited. Some guys do. We try not to do that uh, here, and particularly in the Reformed faith, we, we try to stick with the meaning of the Scripture. So I wonder if maybe he's just exaggerating for emphasis. Sometimes we do that, right? However, as you know, Dr. Lloyd-Jones is one of my foremost intellectual mentors, and so I wonder if he's either overstating the case, or maybe he's being playful and trying to garner our deeper attention to the details of the passage. Maybe he's saying that so we go, wow, I, I don't know what therefore really means. I better read further. But I'm always an advocate for considering the power of the context of a statement in regard to its proper interpretation and understanding. Context. You hear people say, context is king. Our visiting preacher last week said, context is king. You've heard me say that. I got the statement from Ian Murray's bi uh, biography of Jonathan Edwards, and I've always attributed it to Jonathan Edwards. I, I had no success in uh, running that down for you this morning. In fact, if you go online, you'll say that the person who founded the phrase context is king was Bill Gates, great theologian Bill Gates. So I'm not going to use that term anymore. <laughs> now I don't like it anymore. All right? These big tech giants, to me, don't care about truth or, or, or context. So I'm just not going to go there. But I'm an advocate for considering the context. Context matters supremely. And um, I'm going to give you some examples of where it matters. They're not in your notes, so you can look up. I'm going to give you some examples of where context matters. The most simple one, right, is the plea of the atheist that God does not exist. And then he'll love to tell you the Bible says there is no God. Now, you've heard this, right? The Bible does say that. But the full context of the psalmist's plea is the fool has said in his heart there is no God. So you see, context matters, right? Now, I want to test you on a couple of things because there's a couple of things that run around evangelicalism that we shouldn't use as freely as we do because they only, they're only intended for a particular context. You've heard the verse where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. 
And so we get this whole theology revolving around this verse plucked out of context as though as long as we prayer what some denominations call the prayer of agreement, it must come true. Well, we know that's not true. We have such a history of knowing that not every prayer gets answered just because two or three of us think it's a great idea. All right? Now, the context of that is Matthew 18. The context is in the section of the offended brother. If your brother offends you, go to him and you and him alone, you remember. You remember the the process. You go to him alone. You don't run around gossip. You go to your friend. If he doesn't hear you and make it right between you, you go and you get a couple of other brothers in the faith and you go back so that it'll be justified by two or three witnesses. That's in the law of God. We, We honor the spirit of that law even in the church. Not under the law, but the spirit of the law is the same in every dispensation. And then when he still doesn't hear you, if he's still belligerent, you tell it to the church. And the church makes a pronouncement. And the church, if the brother doesn't repent of grievous offenses, will put him out from among you. And then, Jesus said, where two, uh, he said, well, whatever is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. In other words, if you put him out from among you, friends, churches have authority. Nobody preaches this stuff anymore, but churches have authority. And you are either in the church or you're out of the church, and there's authority in the church to put someone out. This is what the teaching is. So if it's bound in earth by the people God appointed to authority in the church, it's bound in heaven. And then he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. In other words, I'm with you in this. Not in everything you agree upon, in this. That's the context. Did I just ruin that verse for you? You should have read it for yourselves. Philippians 1.6 Philippians 1.6 says, um, He who has begun a good work in you will finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. And we all use it. God began a good work in me, he'll finish it. Well, it, it, that's actually true. But it's not written to you personally. It's written to the church. It's a church verse. It's a communal verse. You see, we put the individual first, but the New Testament always puts the church first. Have you ever noticed that? The church isn't some ancillary little thing we added to Christianity. We thought it would be nice, we'd have some parties. The church is God's bride, friends. You're either in with the bride or you're not. So he's writing that to the church. All right, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I've had people apply that to the most outlandish things that they've decided they can do, and I say, you can't do that. It's possible. I can do all things. Hallelujah. And they strut around like they have this power of God. Friends, what the context is, is Paul is saying, I know how to be hungry. I know how to suffer need. I know how to be lifted up. I know how to be based. I can do all things. I wish he said I can do all those things. If that's what you have the power to do, to know how to be hungry, to know how to be in lack and get through it with the glory of God, that's what it means. It doesn't mean you can jump off the roof and sail to your destination. It's not a defiance of gravity type thing. Context matters. That's what Lloyd-Jones is pointing us to. I'll give you one more. You want one more? Or shall I go on? I'll give you one more. First Peter 3.9, God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The great doctrine of the Arminian. Friends, it's in a context. If God's not willing that any should perish, how come so many people perish, right? 
It's within a context. And the context is the letter is not written to every soul that ever breathed. The letter is written to those who have like precious faith with us. The all there is all of us in the faith. Of course God is willing that some people should perish. The Bible's very clear on that. So you see, context matters. Did I destroy your whole last 20 years of evangelicalism by this? That's what you come here for, so I can remake all the bad teaching you've had over the years that we put on bumper stickers that mean nothing out of context. All right? That's what he's saying. The therefore is there for a reason. And so it seems to me that in this case, our beloved commentator is vying for the attention to detail with regard to doctrine and the order of things that take place with regard to our spiritual contact with the Almighty. The therefore is there to give us order. Our God's an orderly God. Our minds ought to be orderly. Friends, the world is cursed with the depraved mind. Professing to be wise, we became fools. That's what chapter 1 is about in this book. But notice the apostle pivots when he's talking to the church. We are relieved of that curse. We're like the Israelites in the plague of darkness in Egypt, and we still have the lights on in our house. Got my generac all hooked up. Dusted it off this morning. But no, they had light in their house. We don't have the depraved mind, friends. We're the ones with the thinking mind. The world thinks that faith makes us dumb. Faith makes us smarter. It builds mental acuity. It doesn't rob you. Faith makes us smarter. And friends, this attention to detail, this is what expository preaching is all about. I don't just get up here this morning and say, I'm going to tell them they can do all things. I'll just take the verse and tell them they can do all things, and we'll all go home feeling invincible until we, something goes wrong. We find out we really can't do all things. Only God can do all things, right? But we don't do that. We take a text and we work the text. And we want to get the meaning out of it. And the meaning of the text is is locked away in language. Language is God's blessing to us. I'll get to that. So he's teaching us to look at context. We take time to parse every word that needs parsing and scrutinize every word that needs scrutinization. Scrutinization isn't a word, by the way. I made it up. It's a neologism. That means a new word. You can make up words, and they w- may make it into the dictionary. But we have our own words as, as Christians. We have some of our own words, right? Nobody says propitiation. We're the only ones that say that, right? Redemption. People talk about redemption. They talk about bottles. But he's He's teaching us to look at context. He would not have us think that the apostles' teaching is just arbitrary. Well, I said this, therefore I'll say that. It's not arbitrary. It means something. With regard to the logical order of spiritual operations that take place in the process of your salvation. There's a spiritual order to things that take place. One thing must take place in order for the other to take place. So if we understand the first Four chapters, which we've labored over, right? You have the notes. You have the scripture. Go back and look. Then he says, therefore, we're entering a new territory. We're entering a new territory. We talked about how we got here. Therefore, we're going to go here. And now he's going to elaborate on that, you see. And so the word therefore has this unique and complicated function toward that end. He's quite simply urging us to be true to language. The word of God is given to us by the wonderful vehicle of human, excuse me, language. 
Language is power. You remember on the plains of Shinar in Babel, he took away that power. Language was power. It was a way to get everybody together to do evil is what it was. That's why we don't take the globalist vision. God separated the world into, into nations, you know, with borders and things. So th therefore is a conjunction, friends. It connects two clauses of thought, okay? Now the Lord could have inspired Paul telepathically, right? He could have just zapped Paul's psyche and zapped our psyches and our, with inspired truth. He would have saved a boatload of ink had he done that, right? But he didn't do it that way. Je friends, remember this. Jesus was willing to spend the cost of Mary's spikenard. That'd be a good name of a sermon, Mary's Spikenard. Do you remember what Mary's Spikenard is? Spikenard was this very special alabaster container of scented perfume that was, um, Judas said, was worth a denarius, right? Which is a lot of money. Is even one of the synoptics, synoptists who said, all the apostles said that, and they objected. Jesus was willing to spend the spike knife. Friends, God's willing to spend a lot of ink to get his word out. The Holy Spirit's willing to spill gallons of ink, racks of vellum, bales of papyrus, and rolls of parchment, and, and pallets of paper. Now, why did I say that? Because those are the media all down through the ages that the Word of God would be inscribed on. It even goes back to stone. But could you imagine trying to fill a library with pages of stone with little carvings of the Word? Imagine putting the footnotes with a small little chisel. So they came up with other things. Vellum is, of course, animal hides. Vellum means veal. It's calfskin. It was the best one. You can't do that forever, right? And the stuff wears out and has to be copied. God is willing to spend all this energy and time and scholarship and, and stuff to get the word of God out. And I don't want to do all of those contributors a disservice by not considering the meaning of important words in the scriptures. And so we have to remember that the truth of God conforms to the conventions of language. And so we don't pass by them quickly. It conforms to language in both its written form and its proclaimed form. I couldn't preach the word to you this morning without language. How would I do it? I mean, Jenna could do it. Um, <laughs> what did I just say? <laughs> Who knows? Jenna knows. I'm certain that you've heard it said, when you see a therefore, go and find out what it's there for, right? Now, you don't hear me say that unless I'm saying that someone else said that because I think you know I'm allergic to cliches. If I say that, I will break out in hives. I can already feel my heart speeding up thinking, is he going to say it? Is he going to say it? He knows he's allergic to cliches. He can't use it. Cliches pass in our culture for wisdom. We love it if we can put it on a T-shirt, all right? You can't always put the doctrine on the t-shirt, and that's what Lloyd-Jones is trying to teach us. Sometimes that obscures the meaning, because the context isn't there, and the therefore isn't there. All right? If you're going to talk about access to God, you have to talk about justification first, because there's no access, and this is what he's saying to us this morning. All right?
We live in a pithy society. Pithy means say it quickly, economically, right? And there's nothing wrong with that, but you have to use all the words that are necessary. Ours is a bumper sticker t-shirt world. As a result, we've come to believe that if a thing is pithy, that it's wise. If it can be easily committed to memory, it gains deeper respect than longer explanations. But expository preaching, friends, is the antithesis of that thought. I'm spending a lot of time and breath over the word therefore. I quite understand that pithy is desirable. Pithy makes things memorable, and I'm all for that. But I have to warn against the fact that pithiness may often lead to erroneous conclusions. Respect for context is first and foremost a forerunner of understanding. And I'm all for simplification, but in the end, Christianity will never be reduced to a bumper sticker slogan. It's too, it's the gospel's simple, but it's not that simple. You ever see someone who has a, a long message on a bumper sticker, sometimes on the back window? I always hit them because I'm, I'm pulling up trying, honey, what does it say at the bottom? I missed it. So some people know that bumper stickers don't do the trick. You, you kind of have to run into those guys in the parking lot so that you have time to read it. But the word of God will never be reduced to such crude and simplistic things. And I believe that we do disservice to God and the blessings of Scripture and the contributions of prophets and copyists and translators and the monks who, who hid the scrolls of the word of God and, and, and protected them from destruction and invading armies. And then there was the printers and friends, those blessed smugglers. Friends, as Protestants, we love the smugglers. Luther hired a smuggler who was so good that Tyndale hired the same smuggler because the Catholic Church was out to get Luther because he, he did the unthinkable. He, he translated the Bible into the language that somebody could read. What a sin. And then, and then Tyndale did the same thing. He did it in English. A hex on them, a pox on their houses. Kidding. And so they hired the same smuggler. God bless the smuggler. You know, we smuggle Bibles into other countries today, right? It's done all the time. It's a missionary thing. We're God's outlaws. I didn't make that up. There's a movie, God's Outlaw. It's about Tyndale. It's about Tyndale. Haven't seen it. It's one of the better ones. Um, but friends, we simplify, but not too much, okay? Paul said something like that to the elders of the, of the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, which is one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture for me. And go back and read it. I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Now, you can put that on a bumper sticker, but you can't put the whole counsel of God on a bumper sticker. Right? Because there's 66 long books. Well, some longer than others. As Jesus said to the disciples... Do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Every jot and tittle, every little sedilla is important to God. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. So we teach the small things and we teach the big things. So I would say that the good Dr. Lloyd Jones has quite hit upon the crux of the matter with regard to this verse. You see, the therefore in this verse points to a conclusion. The verse would make no sense to the person who has not been familiar with the preceding passages of this epistle. 
That's why I can say this to you. You were with me as we went through the first four chapters, right? The apostle labored, and we've labored over these past weeks to unlock the secrets of salvation. He's taught us the great salvific doctrine of justification by faith. Salvific is one of our words. Things that pertain to salvation. My spell check has no access to salvific. All the blinking lights come on. I can shut them off, but I don't. I like that I'm smarter than the computers. Justification, friends, must necessarily precede every other operation of our relationship to God. Therefore, we have peace with God. Justification precedes sanctification. It precedes spiritual discernment. Friends, you're still out there with a depraved mind until you have faith in what God did and are thereby justified before him. Justification becomes before entrance into the throne room of grace to make your petitions to God. You can't even pray rightly because you don't know him rightly unless you're one of us that have been justified. It may even be said to precede blessing. Now, let me digress a little bit here because sometimes I think we get caught up in this thing. I've heard people say, well, God doesn't bless the answer the prayers of unbelievers. And I, I think that's not true. I think God does answer the prayers of unbelievers. But remember, if you pray to God or the God who might be out there listening, if you're there, Lord, you know that kind of prayer, then please hear me. Every answered prayer to the unbeliever becomes a liability. Because in the end, it's like you prayed to me, I answered, where were you in church Sunday morning? You never worshipped me. You never brought me a cup of cold water. Of course, he blesses the prayers of unbelievers. At times, the same way he doesn't answer all our prayers, he doesn't answer all theirs. But their approach is not right because they're not justified. Right? They're coming to God and asking for favors while still in their sin. Right? And so it may be said... That justification precedes blessing to some extent, right? It precedes answers to prayers. It must be accomplished in us if we're to become properly thankful to God. Who are you thanking if you don't know God? And only justification can give you the thought processes to understand who God really is and what he really did. That's what justification means. It must be accomplished in us if we're to become perfectly thankful to God. The author of our salvation... Friends, God is the author of our salvation for the gift of his son, bleeding and dying on the cross. Justification is the operation of the Trinity in securing our place in eternity by canceling our sin debt that we've incurred by a life of sin and transgressions against God. That's what justification is, friends. Justification removes every obstacle between the sinner and and God. And it's done by God. It's done without your contribution, without your suggestions, and without your permission, by the way. I know we like to think we choose, we choose, we choose, but God did all these things for you. You're not here because you chose to be here. You're here because God chose for you to be here. And only secondly do we, Jesus said it very plainly, you chose me because I first chose you, right? So when we're justified, we consider ourselves reconciled to God. Justified, reconciled. In other words, we're legally enemies of God. The, the scriptures is somewhat a legal document. We're born enemies to God. Justification reconciles us to God. We're no longer enemies. 
all right? And I want to talk about the peace of that and the character of that peace because it may not be what we think when we think peace. And this is where the, the great apostle begins this section, the fifth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. We're ju- reconciled, friends. We're justified. We're paid for. Therefore, we have peace with God. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean our every thoughts are peace and we just slumber away our days and uh, idleness now. What it means is we're legally not the enemy of God anymore. The thing that kept us from God has been erased. The middle wall of separation has been torn down, right? Paul's used every argument in his spiritual arsenal to make the point that justification is the first and foremost operation of the Spirit and that it has nothing to do with anything that we bring to the altar of God. Justification has to do what God brought to the altar, and he brought his son and crucified him. You might say, I've had people say, oh, God didn't do that. Our sin did that. No, friends. Our sin did not do that. God could have left us in our sins. Romans are going to get very plain in chapter 7 where it says, He who did not spare his own son. He did not spare his own son. Isaiah 53 talks about God giving him up. The whole chapter is about God giving him up. Spurgeon said we have to trace the crucifixion of God past Roman spear and Hebrew jeer, and we have to put it in the breast of deity. God did those things. No one went before God. Abraham, Noah, Adam, none of them went before God and said, I've got an idea. Kill your son in my behalf. Nobody came up with that. When I first heard that as an adult, and I had read it all my life, I studied it in college by people who didn't believe it. I had priests, I don't know if they believed it, I grew up Catholic boy, right? Heard these things all my life. When I really realized what he did, I thought, no one could have come up with that but God. <coughs> Excuse me. So we bring nothing to God but our debt. And Christ canceled it out. And when we trust in that reality, we have access to God. It's called faith. It's called belief. It's called believing God rather than just believing in God. In other words, believing that he exists. We believe God. He said his son pay for our sins and we believe him. Now we're justified. We have no power in and of ourselves to come as anything but aliens and strangers. Paul said it to the Ephesians. Therefore, remember that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, he says, remember? I titled the whole sermon, But Now. And I wish it was But Now, too. I wish the one before I called But Now, and this was But Now, too. Because, because... The apostle blesses us with one of his famous but now statements. He said, you were strangers from the covenants of promise. No hope without God. But now, it's an order. You see, but now in Jesus Christ, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. But now means now that you're justified. You see, therefore, your sin debt is canceled. There's peace between you and God. Friends, justification by the blood of Christ must logically come before any peace between the sinner and God can take place. We're born at enmity with God, but by the shed blood of Christ we're justified. And what is this justification that we speak of that the apostle labors over us for understand, to understand? Rather, It is the cleared ledger of our souls. 
justification. It's our sins paid for by someone else. The Dutch uncle, they used to say. A friend of mine used to say, you got a, you got a Dutch uncle, in other words, someone that pays your bills? I wish I was a Christian then. I would have said, I sure do. Hallelujah. It's the paving of the path of righteous access to God, which Paul takes up in the next verse. Justification is the paving of the path of all the benefits we enjoy as Christians. You have to be justified first. You have to be paid for first. But logically and spiritually, this justification comes before anything else may be accomplished for the sinner in the spiritual realm. The sin debt is a wall, friends. It is a wall of separation between the sinner, the debtor, and the one to whom whom we owe our lives as payment for that debt. And as long as that wall is high and impregnable, there's no peace with God. Do you know who I just quoted? Thomas Jefferson. And so we may say, Mr. Apostle, tear down this wall. (laughs) Actually, it's Jesus that tore down the wall, but I didn't want to say Mr. in reference to Jesus, so I kind of... See what, I, see what I did there? Escaped a little problem there. But, but now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So he does all this work. He justifies. He pays your sin debt. And then he says, do you believe it? And if you do, that's called faith. And what you didn't know is he gave you that as a gift too. Because the people that say no, they didn't get the faith. You know, we talk about faith and belief like you can sort of work it up. I'm going to believe. I'm getting there. I'm almost there to believe. You know, and, and God doesn't want it that way because, first of all, it isn't faith if you do it that way because you don't believe in the gospel or in the, in the truths of the gospel and, and the justification by faith in Christ. You don't believe in it because all your um, intellectual arguments have been answered. That's not faith, friends. God won't be approached as though it's a science project. You know? The hypothesis, hypothesis um, uh, pans out. It seems that, um, it seems that we're justified after all. I've, I've done the experiments. And, and No, we come. it's called faith, friends. It's called belief. Justification is the road to peace with God. It's the avenue. It's the HOV lane. I've been taking the HOV lane a few times going in to see John. Uh, faith is the prepaid toll ticket that allows you to proceed on your way into the presence of God. You're driving through and other people are stopping and getting rejected at the toll booth, but you got the, what is it, the easy pass and you're just going right through. Been paid for. <laughs> That's what it is. Therefore, you have access to God, you see. Apart from faith, you don't have the price of admission into the kingdom of God. There's no entrance into the throne room for the unfaithful. God accomplished justification, friends, because you couldn't do it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinning, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were yet afar off, while we were as yet unable, while we were too weak and impotent and unable and undesiring and unqualified to choose Christ, we were being reconciled to God. He already knew He had his finger upon you, having predestined you for salvation before the foundation of the world. Our access was being paved. It's our belief in this that brings us to the place of peace with God. Amen? 
Verses 1 and 2 together now, all right? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have all these benefits now because we've been paid for. We're inside the ballroom. We're in here with the saints. Access comes after justification's been accomplished, and it's been accomplished once for all. And so for those who have found faith in God's provision, for those who have found faith in God's acceptable sacrifice, in God's chosen substitute, you have peace. Peace with God. That doesn't mean you'll never get shook up about anything. It's peace. It's, it's a peace treaty. That's what it is. It's the enmity's wiped away now. The apostle speaks of this peace as though it's automatic. By faith, it's automatic. The peace is automatic now that you've got the faith. You've been paid for. You believe you've been paid for. You believe the son paid your debt. You're justified. It's like the, it's like the gates go up. Well done, my good and faithful servant, even though I did it all for you. But come on in anyway. The instant faith is found in you, peace comes with it. Keep in mind, though, that justification is accomplished for you, without your aid, apart from your suggestions, regardless of your works, so that no one may boast. In other words, when you come in, you can't say, yeah, God paved the way and I gave him a hand. You know, he gave me a hand up, not a hand out. No, he gave you a complete hand out. Save that other one for welfare or something. But, uh, the faith you have in his work is also a gift, friend, friends. It, too, is not of your own motivation or better instincts or prudent heart or wise mind. You know, I, I considered it, and I thought it a wise thing to have faith in God. That's not how it comes. He said to the Ephesians again, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, that anyone may boast. If the apostle is anything, friends, he's consistent from epistle to epistle. And I would not have you believe that these graces, this justification, the faith to believe, the resultant access to the throne of grace are set apart from one another by some cavernous gulf. It's like, well, I got the peace. Now I got to go get the access. Then get the sanctification. No, they all come sort of simultaneously, but still in the spiritual order of being paid for first. You see what I mean? I don't want you to sit, meet me at the luncheon afterwards and say, you know, I'm just at the uh, access part. I really haven't gone the rest of the way. You know, sanctification's still out there for me. I have no discernment. No, all, these things are gifts. They're, they're there. They're ready for the taking. You're in the garden and you're just plucking the fruit, right? And so there's not this cavernous gulf between them all. We have to know in our minds if we're to be properly thankful for the greatness of his gift, that the justification part logically precedes all the other benefits of salvation. Enough said? All right, let's all go home. Now, I got a little more. Peace with God. That's the issue here. Peace goes straight to what? Assurance. Friends, salvation's a great gift, and if there's a second greatest gift, it's assurance of salvation. God doesn't intend for us to doubt it. Day after day. He's assuring us of it. That's what Paul's building here for us. We're no longer at enmity with God. There's no obstacle between us and God. So if you're still harboring doubts, just talk to God about it. But he's going to say, just make sure you're in church Sunday morning. Make sure you open your Bible every day and pray with your family. Friends, that's what Protestantism was all about. We have the Word of God for ourselves. We don't have to have someone else always telling us what it says or 
given us the right to, to read it for ourselves and understand it. They thought we would profane the word of God by putting our uneducated minds to the task of trying to understand it for ourselves. Now, about this peace, this is not to be confused with a generic sense of peace of mind. It's not like, oh, my worries are over, I have peace with God. No, you have peace. You're not an enemy, You're not an enemy anymore. You have peace. Um, that kind of peace of mind, any self-deluded person, anyone that joins a cult can have peace of mind. People have peace of mind. They've just thought to, decided not to think about eternity. You know? You ever be at a function with your family and you bring up something? Oh, I don't, it's so morbid. I don't want to talk about, I don't want to talk about death. Oh, that's so morbid. You know, I was, I was feeling good till you brought that up. You know, I want to get back to my peace of mind. Um, you know, you just, you just want to get back, use your other method, your other method piece. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, you know, the motivational speaker that promises you peace, just all you got to do is enroll in his classes, buy his book, and uh, pay the price of admission to his conferences, and he'll tell you the three or five or seven step process to peace of mind, which he, of course, enjoys. Um, but it's going to hell, Okay. Um, such people lay hold of such peace at their peril for a number of reasons. If we confuse a momentary peace of mind or an artificial apathy towards eternity with peace with God, we put ourselves in grave spiritual danger because it's a false security, all right? We have peace. We say ignorance is bliss. It sort of is. You don't think of anything bad, you're going to probably feel better. I'm not sure we're supposed to go through our lives with a rosy attitude about everything. I know some preachers think we're supposed to, but I don't think that. I mean, life's hard. And he's going to talk about that in the next verse. But let's take a moment to present the blessed uniqueness of Christianity, unlike these other sort of peace of mind cultic approaches to things. Friends, we're not a clinic. Jesus is not a therapist in a white coat, okay? who you come and he taps you on the knee and see if your reflexes are good. The gospel isn't therapy. therapy. Faith is not positive thinking. Forget all that stuff, friends. Some people think faith is just positive thinking. They've been taught that. The only reason so many preachers today fall into those insidious pathways masquerading as the gospel is because they think Christianity is in competition in the arena of modern emotional therapeutics. If we don't provide what they provide, they'll go somewhere else. They think we're in competition. I was at a conference one time years ago, and a guy was warning the evangelicals, we've got to get more urgent because the Jehovah's Witnesses are making more converts than we are. And I thought, I didn't know falsehood could make converts. So I went up to him afterwards, and I said, I know exactly how many converts the um, Jehovah's Witnesses are making. How do you know that? I said, it's easy. Zero. They get people, they convince people of things, but you're not converted. You're not made a new creature because you believe some guy's lying about peace and a better life and a better future. That's not conversion. You know, if one guy can talk you into it, another guy can talk you out of it. That's not what faith is. You can't talk the faithful man out of his faith. How are you going to do that? He's a new creature. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Right? Conversion's different than, than uh, being convinced. So we're not in competition, first of all. There's no competition. Re rejoice in the blessed uniqueness of Christianity. 
You're in trouble. You don't even know the trouble. You think your trouble's with the tax collector. Your trouble is with God. You're at enmity with him. You've not been justified. You've got a sin debt you couldn't possibly approach. Never mind what you owe the IRS. That's your problem. Now, I'm not saying when you come into Christ, you can't ask him to solve those problems. I do it all the time. And he answers. And I don't even say, well, you know, sometimes we, we get down and say, well, he, he's caused his own problems. Yeah, I cause my own too, but I still ask God to get me out of it all the time. And he does. Did you notice, though, there are no more problems in society? Have you noticed that at all? There's, there's challenges. No problems we have. Challenges. I hate that word. I hate a challenge. I want everything nice and easy. So we're not about a therapeutic Jesus. We're not in competition. Our gospel does not say, come to Jesus, he'll solve all your problems. People say that all the time, friends, and I'm here to tell you it's not true. All right? Uh, Faith doesn't ask, have you tried everything else? Try Jesus. Are you troubled? Give Jesus a try. Maybe he'll work for you as he has for me. That's not the gospel, friends. Rejoice in our uniqueness. We don't preach that stuff. Don't preach to your troubled friends that Jesus will solve all their problems. It would be more honest for you to go to them and say, Jesus is the author of all your problems. If you want them solved, come to him and talk about it, but he's using your problems to get you to that place. That would be the more honest presentation of the gospel, wouldn't it? Or shall I leave in disgrace? They are his blessings given to cause them to seek him. We don't deny human struggle, friends. We're not above our circumstances. We're here to take them on one at a time in faith. Jesus didn't preach a trouble-free life, but he did speak on the subject of trouble. And this is what he said. He said, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. (laughs) Days come with trouble. Jesus said, just get up tomorrow and face the trouble as it comes. But there's trouble. He didn't say, I'll remove all the trouble. Don't worry about it. That's not what peace with God means, all right? The days come with trouble. Our faith does not extinguish every trouble. It does give us an eternal perspective on it, though. That's helpful, right? It does lead us through. The Lord talks of tribulation and peace in the same context, I'm certain we're all fearfully aware that he promised tribulation in in this life. He said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. But in, in the world, you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Friends, the peace with God that the gospel promises us is the result of our new legal status before God. We are like Abraham, friends of God, in, in the sense of not being enemies. We're not buddies. I don't like when we get all that too familiar like that. You know, we're, we're friends in, in the sense of um, allies. We're on the same side as God now, all right? We're legally absolved of former debt. We don't need to hide our head when we hear the sirens. The cops are coming. We don't need to do that, right? The doors of debtor's prison have opened and we are free. We've been redeemed by the Redeemer. We've switched sides. We've changed allegiances. We've crucified the flesh. We've left our bondage to sin. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And the therefore in this verse has quite the same function as the therefore in today's verse. Right? But there's still more. 
that Paul would have us know. Verses 3 and 4. And not only that, you know, that would be a good sermon title. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. He didn't minus the tribulations. He gave us the ability to glory in them, to glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces something, produces perseverance. We know how to get through. It produces perseverance, produces character. That means strength of conviction. And character produces hope. Now, the hope in the Bible, elpis in the Greek, is not like that hope-so kind of hope, like a hope doesn't rain. No, hope is a, a certain thing. You, uh, Jesus is our blessed hope. It's not like, well, we hope in the end he remembers what he said. No, he's, he's the hope. He's the, it's an object, you see. And so we enjoy this new status. We're free men. We enjoy new freedom of movement in the kingdom of God. Right? We're in here now. There's no, there's no more, you know, checking your, your hand for the, uh, for the stamp to get into the dance. You're there. You're all the way in. We have access to formerly bidden chambers in the temple of God. We walk boldly into the throne room. The cherubim aren't there with the sword stopping you from coming in. You've, you've got access now. We have real peace. We have peace with God. We're not his enemy. And when he sees us, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come into my presence. What can I do for you today? I uh, get a little too familiar. But, and as these things were not, in, um, as if these weren't enough, the apostle informs us, that our new status comes with additional privileges. Peace is not a pretense. Peace is not the mere absence of struggle, which, by the way, is an illusion. We're in this world in their struggle. Peace is present in trial. In other words, when we're in trial, we haven't lost our access. We're here. We can glory in it because God's here with us. There's no more separation. Justification put away with that. Our faith is with us in those tribulations of life that come upon all men. I would not want to approach the trials of life without my faith. Friends, I would not want to approach the trials of life without my church. God didn't just throw the church out there. It's designed. Paul said to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, to install elders in every city, in all the churches of the cities of Crete. Appoint elders in every city. Preach the gospel and appoint elders. Establish churches. Paul went around establishing churches. What did churches have? He had to tell all the churches in the New Testament what to do. In every letter he wrote, he wrote to a church because he knew they were there. They had an address. He could send a letter. If he heard there was trouble, he'd say, well, do these things and don't do these things. He wrote to the Philippians who are present with your elders and deacons. He said, the church is an organization. It's a real thing. And he puts the gifts of the Spirit in the church. You don't want to be home alone in front of your TV set pretending to worship God. You want to be where the gifts of the Spirit are. They're in the church, friends. The fellowship of the Spirit is with the people in the congregation. It's powerful what he did. Invite your friends to church, really. And so we have all these additional privileges and our peace that this peace with God is present through all these things. I've always told you, friends, when we enter into trying times, this is why we have our faith. Access to God does not come before peace with God. Peace comes before access. Peace. That middle wall wiped away, brought down, paid for. Lloyd-Jones again. (laughs) 
You can go to your bed at night and sleep soundly as the result of some teaching you may have espoused. And then he says, the power of positive thinking or Christian science or what you will. You may have lost all your worries and no longer troubled. The the tragic delusion in following such teachings lies in the fact that they do not help you in the most vital matter of all. Indeed, they conceal it from you and encourage you to forget it. They do not help you if you should suddenly die. Right? It isn't just about having a peaceful mind each night and getting to sleep. No. It's about knowing to whom you belong and should death come upon you, you have a savior to intervene an advocate who presents your paid-for soul before God. He goes on, These things would not help you in a day of judgment. You'll not have been lulled into a false sense of peace, he writes, and your position will actually be worse than it was before because thinking you've got all you need, you'll no longer be seeking. What a dangerous thing it is to fail to notice the order and arrangement in which things are stated in Scripture and to reverse them. Being justified by faith, the first result is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He drives home this order and this understanding that Paul's thoughts aren't arbitrary. They're orderly. It's a teaching. Like he said to Isaiah, precept by precept, line by line, he's teaching. I've always told you religion is for death, friends. That's what it's for. When it comes, it does the job if we have faith in the proper doctrines. But I mean all religions. All religions are about death. They're all to, tell, to give us some hopeful view about an afterlife. And we're not in competition with those ideas. Because Jesus on the cross is the only viable option. I mean, even logically. If we were not appointed once to die, we'd not need faith to get us through. But death does come. And so we go somewhere. Friends, when the, the body is lying there, It's alive. And the next moment, it's not alive. It's the same exact chemical compound that it was here as it is here. Now, that changes soon afterwards. But the the moment, the millisecond, when the body dies, it's the same body. What happened? The engine left. Something's gone. Right? You can't weigh it. You can't prove it. But you have to say logically that there's a spirit, right? I know this is fresh, but this is my illustration. The spirit's gone. Religion is about death. Our fear of death asks the question, where do we go? Faith answers confidently, well, we go to God. So we have peace, and so we have access, and so we have privileges and benefits. Yet it seems these, all of these things are sprinkled with tribulation. Right? Just be glad your lives are sprinkled with tribulation. Some people live in a lot more tribulation than most of us at this moment. But what this verse is telling us is our tribulations are also from God. And I don't say that takes the pain out of it. I'd never preach that to people. Oh, don't worry what you're going through. It's, it's natural. God just does that to people. Don't worry. It's still hard dealing with these things, right? So I don't say that knowing God takes the pain out of tribulation, but it does put the glory in it. It's glorious. Friends, what Jesus did on the cross, there were many, friends, there were many people there without faith who just saw that as failure. Jeez, that nice guy preached nice things, and look how they treated him. He's a, I guess he's a failure. He wasn't popular. 
I, I got to tell you, one thing I never want is fame. Fame is there so people can tear you down later on. And it's no more evident than it is in the life of Christ. They thought it was failure. They couldn't see the triumph in it. They couldn't see the glory in his suffering. But we see it. And we step into what the Bible calls a fellowship of his sufferings. We have suffering too, but there's glory in it. It teaches us perseverance of faith. And that seems to be a lesson he really wants us to get hold of. Right? The glory is in the Christian character that's being produced. And then the moment of great pain, in the day of grief, it may not seem like such a thing, but we're become witnesses not only to those around us, but to a whole cosmos of celestial beings. And the angels of heaven look upon the saints of God and say, What is man that you are mindful of him, O God? We are these great, indestructible beings, and these are fragile, weak, little sinners. And look what they accomplish in faith. Remember God's question to Satan from the book of Job? Have you considered my servant Job? He said that to the great cherub of of the heavens. Have you considered my servant Job? And then he talks about hope, friends. Hope is a function of Christian character. And so what's the new theme of the book of Romans then? It's assurance, friends. We're talking about the assurance. Assurance of what, we may ask. We may see as how we're not assured of a smooth ride to glory. We still experience trial. We still experience sadness and grief and lack and all the things that the unbelievers face. So what are we assured of? So where's the benefit of reconciliation? The answer is, we shall be saved from wrath. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Friends, the guy in the street isn't thinking about wrath. He thinks that's a fantasy. He's not concerned because he does not have faith, friends. To him, wrath is as much a fantasy as God is a fantasy. To him, wrath doesn't comport with his concept of his therapeutic woke God. His God's still giving out participation trophies. Right? Oh, God loves us all. We're so good. We're just so good. A shelf full of trophies can't save a person from the wrath of God that awaits every sinner who remains unjustified before God. Our God ensures us continually that no wrath awaits us. Friends, that's a benefit. And so he writes, chapter 8, the great chapter 8, there is therefore now, there is therefore now, that's therefore and but now, both in the same one, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. We have access to the Spirit of God. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. There's the benefit. There's the assurance. You've been justified. You're going to be risen from the dead. For you did not receive the Spirit of bondage again to fear. Friends, we have sadness because John left, but we don't fear. I can tell you, he confided in me many things as a pastor. This man loved God. 
He was saved. He looked at his life. There was great repentance from things. I see this now. I've seen this a lot in people. I saw this in my friend when she was dying at 100 years old and she confessed sin. And I would have never said, whoa, what an old sinner she is. But we get this hold of ourselves when we get close and we say, you know, he made me, he gave me entrance, but I still see sin in my life that I want to put aside. And he gives us this discernment to see ourselves for what we are. And we don't fear to approach him. And we don't fear to approach his minister and tell him, confess our sins to him. The Bible says confess your sins to one another. We don't do that often, but it's a good thing to do. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. You received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Do you have chills when I say that? Because if you do, that's the Spirit of God. And if children, then heirs. There's a benefit. You're heirs with God and joint heirs with Christ, the big brother. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. So there's suffering, and we glory in it. All things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are the called according to his purpose. All things work together for destruction for those who do not love God. Wrath is real. It awaits those with no access. It awaits those who haven't been justified. They are still at enmity with God. But therefore now we have peace and access. Amen. Our Father... Bless us yet further, even in this trying moment for our church, but the Word of God lifts us up, O Lord. It builds us up. It reminds us of eternity. O Father, it reminds us of the brevity of this life. Get on the right track. That's what it reminds us to do, O Lord. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you to bless the proclamation of this, your holy word, this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.